And from verse 27, I'm reading it in J.B. Phillips' version. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's palace and collected the whole guard around him. There they stripped him and put a scarlet cloak upon him. They twisted some thorn twigs into a crown and put it on his head and put a stick into his right hand. They bowed low before him and jeered at him with the words, Hail your majesty, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the stick and hit him on the head with it. And when they had finished their fun, they stripped the cloak off again, put his own clothes upon him and led him off for crucifixion. On their way out of the city, they met a man called Simon, a native of Cyrene in Africa, and they compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. Then when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means Skull Hill, they offered him a drink of wine mixed with some bitter drug. But when he had tasted it, he refused to drink. And when they had nailed him to the cross, they shared out his clothes by drawing lots. Then they sat, they sat down to keep guard over him, and over his head they put a placard with the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now two bandits were crucified with Jesus at the same time, one on either side of him. The passers-by nodded their heads knowingly, and called out to him in mockery, Hi, you who could pull down the temple and build it up again in three days, why don't you save yourself? If you are the Son of God, step down from the cross. The chief priests also joined the scribes and elders in jeering at him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. If this is the King of Israel, why doesn't he come down from the cross now? and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God rescue him, if he will have anything to do with him. For he said, I am God's son. Even the bandits who were crucified with him hurled abuse at him. Then from midday until three o'clock, darkness spread over the whole countryside. And then Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Some of those who were standing there heard these words which Jesus spoke in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and said, This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them ran off and fetched a sponge, soaked it in vinegar and put it on a long stick and held it up for him to drink. But the others said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. But Jesus gave one more great cry and died. And the sanctuary curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The ground shook, rocks split, graves were opened. A number of bodies of holy men who were asleep in death rose again. They left their graves after Jesus' resurrection and entered the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and his company were who were keeping guard over Jesus saw the earthquake and all that was happening, they were terrified. Indeed, he was 
the Son of God, they said. Now this evening we come to this last division of the Gospel according to Matthew, which I have entitled The Passion and Triumph of God's King. Just one word of explanation about the word passion. Um, it has come to mean something quite different. Uh, I am using it in, I think it's a correct way to speak of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We call it the passion of Christ. And it is a very fine word because it has within it all the sense of very strong feeling, powerful feeling, um, uh, bound up uh, with uh, the suffering that he went through. So we have entitled it The Passion and the Triumph of God's King. We have traversed a long way now over these many chapters of Matthew's Gospel and now we come to the climax of the whole story. Indeed I think we have passed in these chapters into the Holy of Holies. We are, we are in the presence of divine mystery and let no one ever think for one single moment that they will ever be able to fully understand what happened on the cross. No, not in all eternity will anyone but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be able to fully understand exactly what happened and the debts that were plumbed on those terrible hours on the cross. As I say, we are in the presence of divine mystery because it's as if two seas meet together. We see it uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We see God and man blending together and yet in some strange way quite distinct. For one moment we see the Lord Jesus as man, obviously and deeply moved by that woman, Mary, as she breaks the most precious thing that belongs to her and, her not, and anoints his head and his feet. He is deeply moved. We see him as a man uh, when later in the garden he flinches at the very thought of the work of the cross and for the first time in his whole history he asks if he could be excused. He flinches as a man. We see him on the cross when he cries out, I thirst. It is as a man we see him. But then on the other hand no sooner have we seen him as a man then immediately we are confronted with God himself. 
for instance, we suddenly discover that in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, we, he, when Peter, to defend him, takes out his sword and strikes off the ear of, of the high priest's servant, the Lord Jesus says, all those that take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you not think that I could call upon my father? And there could be here twelve legions of angels, the whole army, in a moment. And we see it again when the Lord just quietly and confidently, all that should have been done, done on time, he turns to them and says, Do you realize that in two days is the Passover, and I shall be betrayed? and shall be crucified. We see it again and again. It's the mystery. God and man together. It's like two seas coming together. And then again you see it in the circumstances of the story of the history of these days. On the one hand you see all the intrigue and, and conspiracy and uh, and plotting of evil men. You see, you, you see Judas going out in a rage, in a fury, terrible bitterness in his heart. He goes out to, uh, to uh, sell the Lord Jesus. Uh, you see it in the meeting of the Sanhedrin in the courtyard of Caiaphas' home. Uh, some have suggested it was an illegal meeting, but it was certainly a conspiracy. And they were plotting there, and, uh, and, and, and the whole reason for that special meeting was to plot the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it later when Pilate tries to save the Lord in a somewhat half-hearted attempt and finally washes his hand with the whole thing and has him scourged when he knows he's an innocent man. When he tries to release Barabbas to them, uh, Barabbas or Christ, in a final attempt to save Christ, but he can't do it. He's outwitted by the intrigue of the elders and the scribes. We see all these circumstances all combining. Evil men, evil spirits, Satan mastering the whole thing. That's one side of the story. But the other side is the divine side. It's the other sea that meets it. And continually we discover that God takes the very evil men and uses them. And takes their evil intrigues and uses them. And takes all the circumstances which are so satanic and uses them. So that at the end, we almost feel that the evil of evil men has been foreordained. And in some strange way, the whole thing has been planned and worked out. So that finally, the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified by the hands of wicked and lawless men. And yet it was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God did it. Well there you are, that's a divine mystery. You ask me to explain that to you. All the controversy that has raged over Judas. 
Uh, who was he? Why did he do what he did? Could he have been saved? Is there any possibility for a man like that? All these things. I say that in these chapters we are in the presence of divine mystery. On the one hand, never more clearly has it been seen that the Lord Jesus is truly God and truly man. So that whilst he died on the cross as man for men, yet as we have sung that wonderful hymn by Wesley, it was God the immortal who dies. And then again, as I have said, we see it in the circumstances and the history of these last days of our Lord Jesus' earthly life, when on the one hand we have the malice and intrigue of wicked and evil men, and on the other the predestinating power of God working all things after the counsel of his own. Well, we have already traced the story of God's King through the long years of promise and preparation that are hinted at in the genealogy, in those first chapter, the first verses of the first chapter of Matthew. I think, quite honestly, uh, uh, verses that most of us normally skip. But there we have implied and inferred, as it were, the whole long history of promise and of preparation that goes back right over the years, right back to Abraham, and that collection of names, just a list of names, in fact, comprehends a long, long and devious history in many ways of God's dealings and of God's ways and of tremendous historic events uh, down through those centuries. It's all there, we traced it all in one sense, the preparation, the promise of the king, the preparation for the king, right through to his birth, absolutely on time, born of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. We have traced the story from his birth through his anointing when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit for the first time came home to a human being on earth and through his anointing to his testing when he met the full force of the devil and cornered him and triumphed and through his testing to his public manifestation as God's King and God's Messiah and his public ministry. We have beheld what I would call his inherent royalty. Because if there's one thing that comes out in the record of Matthew, it is the inherent royalty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing ever flusters him. Nothing ever panics him. He is all the time in the transcendent, inherent royalty. We've seen it in the way that he dealt with all kinds of problems and all kinds of difficulties. We have seen the demonstration of his majestic authority and power 
on in every realm. We've seen it in nature, when, when there's such a storm that the ship would seem to go down, and with a word he calmed the storm. We've seen it when he had over 5,000 at one, one occasion to a meal, and another time over 4,000, and according to Jewish reckoning, that was only the gentleman. So probably, if it follows the usual um, um, custom, uh, I suppose there were at least as many ladies as men there, and probably a large number of children too. If it follows the custom in our churches in Britain, uh, then I should say there was something like about 15,000, at least, uh, without <coughs> counting any children, to, uh, uh, to that meal. We've seen the Lord Jesus Christ when in such circumstances and we have seen his majestic authority of power seek uh, them that's all and give them to it that's all my God never were the disciples more flustered or more baffled than when he calmly said just sit, seek them in groups of 50 and then turn round to them and said give them to it but he did it. We've seen it when he, when all the sick and the ill and the devil possessed came from all the villages and the towns from miles around. So there's a great concourse of maimed and lame and possessed and diseased people. And we've seen him healing them from early morn to late evening. We've seen him meet someone uh, being buried and raised them from the dead. We have seen his majestic authority and power, no ordinary authority, no authority of, a, of some religious teacher, of some prophet, majestic authority and majestic power in every realm, in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, in the material realm, in every single realm. Why, I think of that wonderful little story when they came to him and said, do you pay the temple tax? And he said, we don't have to pay the temple tax. But he said, right, Peter, go down to the lake and the first fish you take up, you'll find the temple tax in it. I've often thought it was probably a very small fish. Why did the Lord say the first fish? I'm sure it was to try Peter's faith probably the tiniest fish you've ever seen of a sprat. But there inside of it was the half shekel. Majestic authority of power. What a way to pay taxes. Majestic authority and majestic power. We've seen it when they tried to lay their hands on him. And he said, my time, mine hour has not yet come and passed clean through the midst of them. We've seen it in every realm. But more, we've heard him speak and we've heard him proclaim the kingdom as no one has ever proclaimed the kingdom of heaven before. Listen to the sermon. Listen to the sheer royal authority of those words. Ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. Ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. Majestic in not only his actions, but in his words. We think of the mysteries of the kingdom. 
when he explained to us some of those things uh, which are perhaps the hardest of all things to understand and he described them in the simplest of stories a sower went out to sow and some seed fell the wayside and some fell amongst thorns and some fell into good ground well that's all we can say we'd be here the whole evening if we were to even stop there for a while and think about it we have beheld his glory for we have if we have followed these studies carefully in spirit we have been with john and james and peter and we saw that one who was so utterly human and so like us in every way and yet so different we saw moses and Elijah appear and talk with him as if they were all equals. Unfortunately, we didn't get near enough to hear all that was said. I often wonder whether Peter really heard what was said. But what we do know is that um, uh, in that moment of time, they talked about his exodus well what we do know is this that suddenly before their eyes Elijah and Moses disappeared in a cloud but Christ <coughs> was transfigured in glory and his face shone as the sun in its strength of high noon we beheld his glory, said John, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we are at the threshold of his passion, the very point to which all history has been moving, the very purpose for which he was born. For make no mistake about it, the Lord Jesus wasn't born to preach a few sermons or to give us some glorious discourses. Nor was the Lord Jesus born that we might know that people can be healed. Nor was, did he come into this world that we might just see his royal authority and his royal power. No. He came into this world for one purpose only and that purpose was that he might do the work which God had given him to do and that work was the salvation of mankind now the king is here and not only is the king here when we come to Matthew 26, verse 1. But the kingdom has been proclaimed and demonstrated. It's as simple as that. But for fallen men, it is all still a utopian ideal, impossible of realization. I wish that that one simple fact could dawn upon every single one of us that if the Lord Jesus had left us at that point, 
glorious as everything was, wonderful as it all was, all we could have been left with was a, a utopian ideal, a wonderful picture of what things should be and what things could be and what it was in Christ himself, but no more. For us, the door was forever closed. We, lesser mortals, were simply shut out altogether of that kingdom. There was no admittance for us. The word of God was absolutely clear. Holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And that, I think, simply writes off every single one of us. It is just here and at this point that the greatest mystery of time no the greatest mystery of all eternity is unfolded uh, before us the king in all his intrinsic uh, uh, majesty and incorruptible purity becomes the savior of this vile and wicked world. That, I say, is the greatest mystery of all eternity. I am quite sure that one day in eternity to come there will be many mysteries. For God is God, you know. And there will be many things that you and I will not understand. That's the excitement of it. Truly. For we are created beings, and he is uncreated. And we are finite, and he is infinite. And therefore in eternity to come there will still be mysteries, things which belong unto the Lord our God. And we shall only understand things which are revealed unto us. I say that for us means always excitement uh, in many ways. But of all the mysteries that have ever been or ever will be, there will be nothing that will ever touch the divine mystery in the king becoming the Savior. Never. And that's why when John sees the new heaven of the new earth, at the heart of it all, he sees a lamb as it had been slain. There forever to remind the whole new creation, every redeemed person who is part of it will be the cross. I have often wondered, uh, again thinking aloud, I have often wondered whether martyrs and others will ever still bear the marks of their martyrdom. Now you may ask me why on earth do you feel that. What a strange thing to say. Well, I think of it for this reason. The Lord Jesus has a resurrection body and yet he has the marks in his hands and in his feet and he has the marks in his side. No, I think that all who have suffered may well not have such marks in their redemption body. But never forget this dear child of God that to all eternity the Lord Jesus Christ God the Son will bear the marks in his hands and in his feet and the mark in his side. That is to remind all of us of a divine mystery 
which we shall never fully understand. Well, now I must say further, more in introducing these chapters. At no point does Christ, in my estimation, for what it's worth, at no point does Christ reveal his inherent worthiness to be king than here. We see him face all that man finds most fearful and terrible. And we see him face it with a dignity, a majesty, a kingliness beyond compare and without equal. Think. The things that you fear and the things that I fear, what are they? I'll tell you what they are. Pain. There are very few people who won't cringe from pain. If you knew that next week you were going to have the most terrible pain, I'm quite sure you would have an anxiety neurosis in the days before it. Pain. Especially men. The ladies seem to have a built-in capacity for facing pain, at least relatively speaking. But the men, my goodness, a little sniffle and they're down on their backs. Suffering. Suffering of any kind, mental, spiritual, physical. Isn't that one of the things that all mankind fears and, and, and cringes from? Darkness. I mean darkness. Not just physical darkness, but spiritual darkness, mental darkness. Isn't that something you fear? Supposing you were to think of darkness, something that came and baffled you and completely blotted out all your security and everything else. Wouldn't you fear? Derision. Some people will face any pain, but derision is a thing they could not face. Derision, loneliness, loneliness. Some people fear loneliness more than anything in this world. Loneliness. But that's something the Lord faced. Pain, suffering, darkness, derision, loneliness, forsaken, supposing you were to uh, know that everyone would forsake you. Everyone. Your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your friend. Everyone. Supposing you were to know that God would forsake you in the hour of your greatest extremity and need. Forsakenness. Evil. Some people fear evil. I have not put sin because I don't think anyone fears sin. We have a, a, an inborn love of sin, all of until God, by his grace, starts to make us loathe it. But evil, in the sense of abomination of iniquity, 
something which stares at you starkly, even sinners are fearful of. Would you like to think of yourself in the hands of wicked men? Men who have no conscience? All that. Disease. Some people are terribly frightened of disease. Yet it tells us in the word that he bore our diseases and carried our news. Some people are so frightened of disease it's really almost pathetic. He faced it and bore it. You know, some of us had flu and every bone in the body ached, but I have often wondered what it meant for the Lord Jesus when he bore the illnesses of the world. One little virus can do so much to us. I've often wondered what it meant to the Lord when he bore the lot. And that, my dear friend, is compared as nothing compared to sin. <coughs> that is only the outer fringes of his passion, the outer fringes of his suffering. Death the word of God says that death is the last enemy and says that it is through fear of death we are all held all our lifetimes subject to bondage. Most people fear death. Even I'm afraid some Christians fear death. Now, my dear friend, the inherent worthiness of the Lord Jesus to be king is seen in the way that he faced everything which man finds most fearful and most terrible, and through it all shines a dignity and a majesty that I have said is without equal, beyond compare. You know, if I were to say none of those things and substitute one single possibility, I think it would ring uh, uh, a bell in every heart, the fear of the unknown, the unknown. And I believe that when the Lord Jesus flinched in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, perhaps the greatest fear of all was the unknown. For even as a son, he had never, never, of the path he was going to tread. He didn't know what sin was. He didn't know what forsakenness was of, of God, to be forsaken of God. That was a thing that in all his being he had never known, never touched. It was the great unknown, even for him. The thing that I find so marvellous in these chapters is this, that at no time does the Lord Jesus lose his dignity or compromise his kingdoms. To me, that is marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. For we would expect that when a person goes through what he went through, he would somehow, somewhere along the line, react and compromise that kingdoms that is within him. But nowhere does he do it. Oh, my friend, just you think of it. it his, his, his 
kingliness shines through it all. Beaten. Swollen. Ah, Mrs. Johnson had a fall and her arm came up like a balloon. It made her ache in every part of her body. My dear friend, you have no idea what the Lord Jesus went through. Lacerated and bleeding. Spittle on his face. Why do I go through this? I tell you why I go through Because I want you to see that he didn't lose his dignity. For someone to have spittle on their face means generally they lose their kingliness. They compromise it somewhere. But he never did. Never was he more royal. Never was he more kingly. Never was there a greater dignity. Never was there a greater authority. When they slapped his face and said, prophesy to us. Who was it that struck you if you are the son of God? He answered them not a word. Absolute authority. No, it's all there. A but for coarse joke. When you read it in the new modern versions, it makes you realize something. A but for coarse joke jeer at, derided, not esteemed. It's all right if you're suffering and going through something for some great principle and at least everyone says, well, he's suffering, but. But when everyone derides it all, says, hail your majesty, king of the Jews, it's all a joke. It's what, this man's, this man's a fraud. He, he's not esteemed. His human strengths simply giving way under the physical weight of the cross, not the moral weight, the physical weight, so that he fainted. Someone else had to carry the cross for him. Nailed through his hands and his feet to a great wooden stake. All hell let loose in a few hours, a few hours of satanic fury and darkness such as this world has never seen and will not see till the very end of this age when it will be let loose on the church. All that, and he never compromised his kingliness at a single point. And never lost his dignity. Now that's the thing that shines out in these three uh, chapters. It's a majesty that this world doesn't know. It's something that's not of earth. It's from heaven. It's a different <coughs> kind of kingship. It's a different order of man altogether. Even when forsaken by God for the first and only time in his being. I use that word thoughtfully. His being. Not just his history, but his being. This universe heard the most fearful and the most awesome and 
the most terrible cry it has ever heard. Even then, his kingdom is apparent. Even at that point. Well now, you see, my whole point this evening is somehow or other to convey to you something of the sheer wonder of these uh, of these chapters. Brother Shaw and Ron and I were just talking about it before and Brother Shaw was saying how it seems that these chapters are written in such a matter-of-fact kind of way. How else could they be written? The infinity of the subject. The depths of it. The inexhaustible nature of it. There was only one course open, and that was to put down the facts in the simplest, childlike way that they could be put down and leave the Holy Spirit to interpret to us something of the infinity that lies behind the history. Is it then any wonder that early Christians, when quoting Psalm 93 and, and verse 10, say to the nations, the Lord reigneth, used to quote it like this, say to the nations, the Lord reigneth from the tree. The Lord reigneth from the tree. Well, whether it has got any historic basis for it, Justin and others say that the Jews deliberately expunged from the old text from the tree, or whether it is just what early Christians added, the fact of the matter is that never did the Lord reign more truly and more genuinely than when he was on the cross. Christ made the cross a throne because of his inherent kingdom. And therefore, that cross has become a throne forever. And that's why Christ crucified will reign to all eternity. And that's why the Apostle John, when he looks into heaven, sees on the throne a lamb as it had been slain. In almost as it were, all the time in the process. It was the tree. It was the crucifixion present in the midst of the throne. So that um, the altar became the throne. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 2, I think it is, we're told that a great river of life that comes out from the house of God flows from under the altar. But when we see, see the same vision at the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22 and verse 1, we're told the river flows from under the throne. The altar became, becomes the throne. And the Lord Jesus made the cross the throne. Now, it is just at that point that you see the sovereignty of God. 
that when the devil is drawn out to his fullest extent, to his greatest fury, and when he does his very worst, God makes what he does the throne. There's nothing very beautiful about the cross. There's nothing very beautiful about Calvary, really, except the inherent kingdom of beauty of character and love and grace that we see in the crucified one. But, just in case anyone should think, from what I've said this evening, that the Lord Jesus went to the cross to exhibit his kingliness, let me say once and for all that he did not go to the cross just to express his inherent majesty and royalty. He went to the cross that we might be brought into the kingdom of heaven. That's why. Up to that point, as I have said, it was a utopian ideal, impossible of realization for any single one of us, including the greatest. We were all shut out forever from the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus went to the cross in order to open the gate into the kingdom of heaven and bring you and I sinners by nature and practice into that kingdom forever to deliver us from the authority of power of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of the Son of his love forever. It was not duty that took the king to the cross and it was not ambition that took the king to the cross. It was love. And herein is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Now then, dear child of God, what can we say as we approach these last three chapters of this gospel. I must tell you that I have never felt uh, more inadequate uh, than approaching these uh, uh, chapters. And I have felt consistently inadequate uh, over, many over many studies, uh, even when we faced difficult prophetic books such as Jeremiah or others like, or Ezekiel with his involved visions I never felt so inadequate as when I came to this why do I feel inadequate? because we are not dealing with complexity we are dealing with simplicity Absolute, and that's why I feel so inadequate. To feel that something is complex, involved, intricate, well, that just baffles the mind. 
But when something is drawn in strong, bold, simple lines, and still behind it lies a mystery which is unfathomable, then you really begin to feel how inadequate you are. I cannot convey to you what there is in these three chapters. I only know this, that if you got just a little, just a little of what is contained in these three chapters, if you were to understand just a trifle of the emphasis, my dear friend, your life would be utterly and forever changed. Away with this idea that the cross is some small thing that can be comprehended in a hymn or a prayer. That it was some dear redeemer that breathed his tender last farewell, and that's that. It wasn't. It was something that reaches out to the ends of time and eternity. Something that reaches out, as it were, from the centre to the skies, as one of our hymns says. Reaches out to the ends, not only of this universe, but possibly to others. It is a tremendous thing to be saved. And no trifling matter. It wasn't that God became man <coughs> simply and easily and cheaply lived a little life for 33 years and died easily on the cross because he was God. It was not that at all. If it is familiar to you and seems easy to you and it is easy to become a Christian, it is easy to put our trust in a finished work to have no works of our own. It is an easy thing, but don't you ever think for one single moment that it was easy for God. Or that because it's easy for you, for him, it was easy. No, as we approach these chapters, what can we say? What can I say? We are on the shore of an ocean of unutterable agony which n none of us realize and none of us will ever plumb. And if that little phrase were to be burnt into your minds by the Spirit of God, it would finish all slapdash, carefree, irreverent ways and attitudes when we come to the Lord's table. It would get to the root of so much which is familiar in the things of God. Think again. In these chapters, we stand on the shore of an ocean of unutterable agony. An ocean. You are just a little few feet of flesh and blood and bone. And you are on an ocean 
greater than the Atlantic that could swallow you up a billion, billion times. It's an ocean of agony. Now, that's why uh, our hymn writers, when they've really seen something of the cross, strain and strive to put it into words and never succeed. They're all filled with a with a, a marvel and a fear and an awe of what they behold. We catch, I think, some little glimpse in the words of Christ. In chapter 26 and verse 38 and 39, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. It's an extraordinary statement. My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. That's the sorrow. Uh, verse 39, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, have you noted one all-important phrase which I think reveals more than even the words? Going a little farther, he fell on his face. I think that reveals everything. Reveals everything. That is the ocean of unutterable agony. My soul is sorrowful unto death. He went a little far, farther and fell on his face. You know, I cannot imagine the Lord Jesus flinching from anything. When the Father um, told him, asked him to come into this world. He never flinched. It says he laid his glory by. Uh, he, he, although he wasn't in equality with God, he didn't think it a thing to be grasped. He, he humbled himself and became a man, and so on. I mean, there was no flinching from it. He came into it. He went through with it. It was as simple as that. Why then, for the first time? in his history does he flinch? Surely there is something in that cross that you and I have not yet understood. Surely there must be a depth of agony, a depth of suffering, a, a depth of darkness, a, a depth of loneliness and forsakenness that you and I just... Do you think the Lord Jesus was flinching from physical pain? Do you think he who went through everything so transcendently was flinching from just what was outward and physical? Don't you think that it's what the scriptures is the pains of hell got hold on him or tied to? Don't you? Don't you think that there was something in the very nature of sin and in the very nature of evil the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah puts it, 
he hath laid on him not just the sin, not just the evil, but the iniquity of us all. The strongest word in Scripture for sin. An ocean of unutterable agony. That's why the Scripture draws a veil and we shall. All we shall seek to do is to convey to you something of what is there. For in these cheap days in which we live, these days of familiarity, there's very little fear of God in anyone. People think they can talk about the work of the cross and, and Calvary, uh, just like talking about some film or some book can't do it. You've got it again in those words in chapter 27 verse 46 which we have read together. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <coughs> in those two words of our Lord Jesus Christ we have a glimpse into an ocean of unutterable agony. It wasn't physical. It wasn't even mental, although it comprehended both to extremities. It was spiritual. For at that moment, the sin of the whole world found its roosting place in him. Now, if you've ever done anything really evil, and your conscience really tells you, you know the hell it can give you. You know something of the misery of sin, don't you? If you're old enough to really sin in a terrible, any, any terrible way. My dear friend, when sin was laid on him, it was not my sin alone, nor your sin alone, nor one of my sins, nor one of your sins, nor many of your sins, or many of mine, but it was the sin of the whole world, from Adam to the last one that shall ever be born. The sin of them all, it contorted his spirit. It drove a sword through his inner being and tore him to shreds. It severed the eternal relationship there had been with him and with the Father. In one moment, the Lamb became the serpent. And God struck the serpent once and again and again. And he died. That was it. An ocean of unutterable agony. The king passed into that darkness alone. He only could do that work. He only could win that battle. No one can penetrate his loneliness. It is fearful and terrible.
terrible beyond all human conception and comprehension. And to the end of all eternity, you and I will never know it. We hear only one great convulsive sob, if you like, and I like the word sob. One great convulsive sob that comes out of the heart of that ocean. That's all we hear. And it speaks of a cost that you and I will never understand. And it speaks of the king becoming the savior. That was That's all. Listen to me. That's all. And your salvation was one. And my salvation. For if, if he passed into that darkness alone, and for a moment is lost to sight, and no one can penetrate, he came back, and as the old hymn puts it, he came back with the foiled usurper's crown. He triumphed. If the world has never seen such agony, the world has never seen such triumph. Because, for me, the most moving words in the whole record are found in chapter 27 <coughs> and uh, verse 51. <coughs> and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top. Now, note the words. They come immediately after those terrible words. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and died. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. What does it mean? Oh, the matchless simplicity of the words. What a universe lies behind them. That veil, what it symbolizes of alienation from God, of door, of a door, of a gate closed to us, to the kingdom of heaven. That's what it symbolizes. Now, invisible hands have taken it, not from the bottom and torn it to the top, but from the top they've taken it and torn it to the bottom. What does it mean? It means that the kingdom of heaven at last is opened to sinners saved by the grace of God in Christ. Simple as that. Listen to me. As simple as that. Yes? If you understand that behind that simplicity lies an ocean of unutterable echo.
if it was God's mind that conceived the plan of our salvation, and if it was God manifest in the flesh who was born at Bethlehem, and if it was God's heart that was broken for us on the cross, then it was God's hands that tore the veil of the temple in two. Well, that's where we end tonight. I don't know whether I've conveyed anything to you of the infinity of what happened. You are such a worthless individual. Forgive me saying it, but you are. And so am I. Worthless little bits of flesh and blood when we are saved, we give the Lord nothing else but trouble and very little joy. And yet it was for us, it was for us that he passed into this darkness. It was for us that he met Satan full on. It was for us that he died. In incredible, quite incredible. I shall never fail to be amazed at the gospel because it is incredible. But oh, the greatness of his love and the greatness of his grace and oh, the power that sought us and won us. It's tremendous, really. Tremendous. I think it's a good thing for you and I to realize just how tremendous was the cost of our salvation. Now, my dear friend, we finish. But just you remember this. Mm -hmm. You are a child of God. You have been saved by the grace of God. Is that not right? You have been born of the Spirit of God. You are in the kingdom of heaven. Just you remember that it cost God everything. The next time you're tempted to abuse the grace of God or to be familiar with the things of God, just you remember what it costs to save you. Don't you think that it was just signing a decision or it was going forward at a rally. Or it was kneeling down and saying a few words. Maybe that was the outward thing that clinched the matter. But my dear friend, behind it lies an ocean of unutterable agony. That God himself entered and bore and came back. That is the story of these last three chapters. Next week we shall deal with the first part, and perhaps part of the second, Gethsemane. When we think of the threshold, I don't like that word, and we may be able to suggest a better, the threshold of the king's passion. No wonder the Lord was deeply moved when Mary took an alabaster cruise and broke it over him. 
she was one of the few people that ever did anything that expressed a devotion. Have you ever thought of that? You look through the Gospels. Oh, some people went back and thanked him. Thanked him? Thanked him? They went back and thanked him. And well they should. But you, if you look through the Gospels, will find that in hardly any instance did anyone ever do anything that cost them anything. It was all what they got, what they got, what they got, what they got. Do you know, my dear friend, that's just the same with you and me. It's what we get, what we get, what we get. We judge everything by what we get. We judge the Lord by what we get. We judge the meeting by what we get. What we get, what we get, what we get. The reason the Lord said this woman, what she has done, shall be told as a memorial for her. Wherever the gospel is preached is that she went further and she did something that cost her a lot. And she lavished it on him. My dear friend, no wonder the Lord said to her, he rebuked the others and said, she has done it over against her parents. What did he mean? I think he meant she has in some simple and very small and perhaps shallow way seen something of the ocean of unutterable agony and she has responded. And that's where it leaves you and me tonight. Have we responded? It's one thing to be saved, that's what we get. It's one thing to have peace and joy, that's what we get. It's one thing to have eternal life, that's what we get. But has he got anything? Have we responded like that? May the Lord help us. And may somehow something of the greatness of what he has done dawn upon us in a new way. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, as we bow in thy presence, we do praise thee for thy love and thy grace. What can we say, Lord, when we think of what thou didst do on the cross. We just simply would ask thee, Lord, that somehow, if nothing else, some sense of the greatness of it all and the cost of it all may dawn upon us and may bring a true and a genuine and a loving fear and reverence of thyself into all our hearts and may bring us to be a people who understand something of what lies behind our salvation and something of the wonder of the cross. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.